Lord, we thank you for your presence here this morning. And we indeed want you to be exalted. And may you be lifted up through the preaching of the word of God. Once again, speak through me to build your church up. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Take a seat. The young man, um, John Wesley, I'm sure you're aware of, Methodism, the Methodist Church, and so on. As a young man, he entered uh, Christ Church. Uh, it's one of Oxford, Oxford, England, one of the largest colleges in 1720. After receiving his education, he was elected fellow at Lincoln College, Oxford, and ordained two years later. And that's fascinating because he was ordained two years later because he wasn't a believer then. <laughs> if you knew that or not. He eventually joined a holy club with his brother Charles. Of course, Charles Wesley is known for what? Writing the hymns. Okay. Uh, where they agreed or covenanted together to live disciplined Christian lives, given to serious study of the Bible, prayer, fasting, and charitable works. Now, 15 years later, 1735, the brothers sailed with General Oglethorpe on his second expedition to Georgia, but even in this missionary service, the old doubts that their experience of salvation surfaced for both John and Charles, and neither John nor Charles could find assurance that he was indeed the child of God by grace. They returned to England, believing their lives and ministries had failed. Ever felt that way before? John Wesley wrote of his experience in Georgia, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? But everything changed on May 24th, 1738. John recorded his conversion at a society meeting in Aldersgate Street, London. And here's a portion of what he recorded. It says, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I thought I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and save me from the law of sin and death. That is the salvation testimony of John Wesley. Of course, he would go on to found Methodism and the Methodist Church and so on. And he is turning over in his grave right now at what is going on in that denomination. But keep this in the back of your mind that salvation is the theme of what we're going to look at this morning. So get your Bibles out. The verses are not on the screen. You'll understand why. Turn to Zechariah. I will give you 30 seconds to get there. Here's a hint. It's the second to last book in the Bible. Okay? Not a very big book. Anyone want to venture to say what the last book in the Old Testament is? Malachi. Malachi. And the second to last book in the Old Testament is Zechariah. Okay? Look at 
Zechariah chapters 12 and 13 this morning. In the understanding of eschatology or study of the end times, you have to go through Zechariah. It's fascinating what God did through him. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Now I'm going to give you a basic, uh, a, a, mainly a literal translation of this um, with some obviously some symbolism that goes through, as you'll see. Um, but we'll explain different interpretations of this towards the end of the sermon. But in order for us to really understand it as this audience would have understood it in context and word for word, this is what we're going to look at. So, it says, the burden of the word of the Lord. Now, the word burden means it's a weighty message he's sharing from the Lord, and it's towards Israel. And immediately we see a reference to the sovereignty of God. Well, how so? Well, chapters 12, 13, and 14 really are one unit, and they deal with the day of the Lord. So that's at the end, okay? But how does he begin? The Lord who does what? Stretches out what? Heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man. And when did all that happen? So you have creation to, and he's going to be talking about the very end. Okay? So since this message refers to the end times, God opens this oracle with a reminder that he is not, he not only controls the end, as we're going to find out, but also the beginning, because he is the creator. And keep that in mind. Everything that, that, that we talk about is going to happen or we think is going to happen in the end, God is in control and he is authoring it. He is sovereign over all things. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Okay? He is the creator, and in this case, he will also be the consummator. Okay? Verse 2 Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. Now, this doesn't make sense to us, but they would have understood that the word cup refers to a a flat basin, something that many people could drink from. This is what this word means. And so, all the nations are seen coming to this large basin and drinking, and that causes them to reel. In other words, I will make Jerusalem a basin that intoxicates the nations because they're coming in a siege against Jerusalem. See that? And since the nations are besieging the city of Jerusalem and the smaller towns in Israel, that's what he means when he says Judah. What happens is they, these nations become drunk from drinking from the basin and therefore they are unable to defend themselves. Because what are they doing to Jerusalem? There's a siege. They drink from this basin, however, and they are really in, in drunkenness. They're unable to defend themselves, and that's the picture here. So the nations that come to destroy Israel end up staggering in confusion and bewilderment. And that's the first image of judgment. There's a second image of judgment. Verse 3, it will come about in that day that will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. So now we have all the nations of the earth coming against who? Jerusalem. Okay? And this is where in the Old Testament we get what is also said in the New Testament. What battle? 
in the very end. Armageddon, okay? Yeah. Now, God, in verse 3, makes Jerusalem not only a flat basin, but also, in verse 3, a heavy stone that the nations do not want to lift. If they do, this is what it literally means, they will tear or rush themselves, which means what? If you lift something heavy and you tear or rupture something, what have you just given yourself? A hernia. That's exactly what it means. Now, what, what theologians believe is that when a global army, all the nations, try to pick up Jerusalem, they attack her, in the sense of destroying this city, what's going to happen to them? They're going to be severely injured. Okay? And that's the second image of judgment, of a flat basin that intoxicates them, and now of a heavy stone. Verse 4. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. This is where we obviously don't take this completely literally, but the Lord will strike against the weapons, in this case symbolized by horses of the nations, and the one who operates these weapons with bewilderment and madness. And this is similar, if you may recall, from your Bible background and, and so on, to the time when Gideon, remember he attacked the larger armies of the Midianites and the Amalekites in Judges chapter 7, remember that? When the 300 men blew their trumpets and shouted, and this is what came up, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, each stood in his place around the camp, there's 300 men, and all the army ran, crying out as they fled. And when they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord did what? He set the sword what? One, the other. So there is chaos, and they are killing themselves. This is the idea that, that theologians believe Zechariah is talking about. Okay? This is what the Lord is going to do in Jerusalem and in Judea. And this army was defeated. It completely fled. So terror, what we think is this, in confusion, will seize the ranks of, of these forces, these world forces. But in the midst of this massive force that is at war with Israel, we read of, we read of a look of protection. You see that? The Lord will watch over the house of Judah. Now, we'll get a little bit more specific here in a moment, but you'll understand as we go through this. Verse 5, Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. Now, what does that mean? Because it doesn't make any sense to me, so I had to research this. It means this. The people in Judah remember the promise of God's protection for his children. By the way, Jerusalem is obviously what? In Israel, and it's a what? A city. What is Judah referring to? It's the smaller towns and villages around Jerusalem. Okay? So when we talk about the clans of Judah, that's really what it means. And the little clans of Judah who are first engaged by these world armies are seeing great success. Okay? In confounding the enemy. And it says, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. What does that mean? Well, the people in Judah are going to remember of God's promise of protection for his children. So they return to the word of God that they grew up listening to, and the Lord of the hosts, their God. The circumstances make the people realize that they have no defense but God. Because what's happening? God has promised to protect Jerusalem. And 
through these smaller towns, Judah, they're confounding this overwhelmingly large army. And they realize, who's doing this? Is it them? It is God through them, right? See, God is sovereign, and he is going to be glorified. There's no other alternative. And so they trust in God because he is a strong support for Jerusalem by his own declaration. So you see, God is lifted up. He's exalted. He's the focus here. Verse 6, In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a firepot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. So he will consume on the right and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. Obviously, in order to get to Jerusalem, you must go through Judah, the small towns and villages throughout Israel. And as these armies, the nations, march toward Jerusalem, these small towns and villages, they're going to be like fire pots among pieces of wood, like twigs, basically, or flaming torches among sheaves. If you take a hot fire pot and put it with dry, in the midst of dry wood, what's going to happen to that wood? It's going to burn right up. Same thing with the sheaves and the flaming torch. And just as a fire pot torches the twigs and the torch sets fire to the dry grain, Judah's villages and towns will be empowered by God in some miraculous way, theologians believe, to nearly, although they don't, aren't successful in destroying the invading armies as they come. And the only logical explanation for this is who is really doing this. It is God. Now, Judah will suffer losses. There will be a loss of life. But will survive, and Jerusalem will not finally be conquered. Verse 7, The Lord also saves, will save the tent of Judah, tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. It is the Lord that saves the small towns and villages, Judah. Now, there is, I wrote down here, there is no logical explanation for the small towns and villages being able to withstand these armies of the world. Therefore, nobody is able to say the victory was won by the power of Jerusalem, by our might, or by our armies. Because what does the Lord say in Zechariah? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And Jerusalem, by the way, is, is the fortified city on a hill geographically speaking. The people recognize that Jerusalem and Judah are being saved by who? By God. Verse 8, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. God is going to somehow empower the Israelites to defend themselves both in the countryside and in the city of Jerusalem, they'll become, as is neat, like the mighty warrior David. Jerusalem will be protected by the angel of the Lord, too, the Messiah, as he now appears. So it's like the angel of the Lord before them. So now we're talking about what? If the angel of the Lord is coming, this is talking about what? The second coming. Okay? Verse 9, In that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. In that day, the one who is of the house of David, the Messiah from David's line, comes to seal the final victory, and that is Jesus, the conquering hero. 
And of course, this is a description of what theologians believe is the Battle of Armageddon. Now, verse 10, this is where it gets, the, the key point is, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So the elation of victory, completely overwhelmed by the sorrow, because it is at that moment that God pours out on Israel the spirit of grace and supplication. And God now speaks, it's him speaking, in essence says this, because of my grace, the very people who pierced me, and that was of course who? The Jews will now look on me and mourn for their rejection of me. They will mourn as if they lost an only son and weep bitterly as if they lost a firstborn child. Verse 11, In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadadrimmon in the plain of Megiddo. Now this mourning will be comparable to the mourning of Hadadrimmon. Now what is that? Well, they would have understood this, but we need to understand it and be told this, reminded of this. That's a reference to the death of King Josiah. Remember him? Really one of the few good kings of Israel. He was murdered by Pharaoh. You can read that in Second Chronicles 35. But the people mourned for him. In the morning when they see Jesus come again, it will be like that type of mourning, if not greater. Verse 12. The land will mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. Now, obviously, he is repeating this. God's saying this over and over again, the same phrase. What point is he trying to make here? Well, it's not only national mourning, folks. It's individual mourning. Every family mourns. And within the family, individuals mourn. And why are they mourning? Because God poured out what? A spirit of grace and supplication. And the reason it points out that the wives are mourning is simply to make the point clear that, you know, especially at this time or that time in history, wives submit to husbands as a standard behavior. But here it will be the wife repenting of her own sin. But the Lord reminds us that salvation does not happen to nations. It happens to individuals. And the process of salvation continues in chapter 13. It says, in that day, verse 1, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. So for everyone, from the royal family to the common folks, the Lord's going to wash their sin and impurity away. Well, how is he going to do that? Well, through the trial of war, they remembered God's word. And God, by grace, sends his spirit of grace and supplication to reveal an understanding of the truth to their hardened hearts and veiled eyes. In this impossible situation they find themselves in, they have no defense but God. For thousands of years, 
The Jews have lived in darkness. And now, in the darkness, what happens in the sky? Remember? A light appears. The Son of Man returns. And they turn to him and see the one they rejected as their king and crucified on the cross. Yes, it was Rome was the instrument of his death. But who is to blame for his death? It is the Jews who rejected their king. And they are genuinely mourning for their sin. Verse 2, It will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirits from the land. Now, why is this here? Well, how do we know that this turning to Jesus or turning to God is real? Well, immediately, the salvation of Israel leads to an elimination of three things that are all interrelated and have been the source of misery for Israel. The two besetting sins of Israel have always been idolatry and false prophecy. Wherever idolatry existed, it existed as a result of false prophets propagating it. So first thing we see that's eliminated is the unclean spirit from the land. You see that? Now, you guys are smart enough. You probably know what that's referring to. Uh, no more evil spirits that tempt people to disobedience and deceive the prophets. False prophets are removed because they're influenced by evil spirits. These prophets drew the people away from the worship of the true God into the third thing that's removed is the idols. The people worshiped idols introduced to them by who? The false prophets who were deceived by the unclean spirits. Well, that is all removed. Unclean spirits, false prophets, and idols. That's why verse 3 says this, And if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live. <clears throat> For you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. Look at that. The people have so changed that even family members are doing what? Who are they destroying? Their own children who prophesize falsely. The hatred of false prophecy will overrule family affections. What did Jesus say? You must hate who? Father, mother, everybody in comparison to your love for me. You're not, if you don't do that, you're not worthy of the kingdom. Parents will be the instrument of, of divine judgment to destroy false prophets and to get rid of idols. So we're seeing here that this is real salvation. Look at verse 4. Also come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. They don't want anybody to know they claim to be prophets because they see the consequences when God begins to change and cleanse Israel from their deception. They're going to no longer put on the rough robe of a prophet. I don't know if you knew that or not. But to be identified as a prophet, they wore this robe that that's made them realize, okay, this guy's a prophet. And they got the idea from who? Well, the hairy robe of Elijah. Okay? And that was one of the marks of a prophet. Verse 5, But he will say, I am not a prophet. I am a tiller of the ground. For a man sold me as a slave in my youth. The shame of false prophets is so great that they claim to be what? Farmers. Verse 6, And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? 
Then he will say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. What does that mean? Well, remember, it was custom among pagans and false prophets to cut themselves. Remember the story of Elijah's confrontation with the false prophets of Baal, Mount Carmel, and what did they do? They cut themselves, okay? So a scenario is set up where these false prophets or prophets are questioned. Now, the original Hebrew reads this, what are these wounds between your hands? So it's not your arms, it's really your hands. If you're not a prophet, why are you wounded? And the response is, in the original Hebrew, is not friends, it's lovers. I was in the house of my lovers. So who are the lovers? And most theologians agree the lovers are the idols that they worshipped. These are the wounds of my adultery. In other words, the prophet has no alibi. He can't escape questioning. In this day of cleansing, God does not allow a way out for false prophets. Now, that's how God is cleansing Israel. But salvation can never happen, as you and I know, until there is a payment for sin. And that's exactly what God introduces next. Look at verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. What is that a reference to? Who is capitalized, my shepherd, in my associate. It's Jesus. Okay? It's a reference to the crucifixion of Christ, where the Lord caused our sin, our iniquity, all of us, all of it to fall on him. And Israel witnessed this. So Zechariah shows, first of all, Israel's cleansing from the defilement of sin, cleansing from the deception of false prophets, and now cleansing through the death of the shepherd. So now our Lord prophesies about a future dispersion. Remember, Jesus quoted this in Matthew 26, 31, when he literally quoted Zechariah 12, 7. Remember this? Then Jesus said to them, You all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, there it is, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Exactly was prophesied through Zechariah. Now, theologians believe that this was one of many dispersions or, okay, or scatterings. Uh, not only was this fulfilled, obviously, with the disciples when they deserted Jesus, but there are some who see a, a final fulfillment of this in 70 AD when Jerusalem was fell to the Romans. And what happened to the nation of Israel? It ceased to exist until when? 1948. And what happened to all the Jews? They were scattered, they were dispersed. And ever since then, the Jews have been dispersed around the world. Verse 8, It will come about in all the world, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And this is where it gets a little bit controversial here, but it, since Israel is under siege, there's going to be a loss of life. And these verses tell us there will be a great slaughter. The majority of people in Israel, during the, what they believe to be this last battle, the Armageddon battle, are going to die. But here's the key, and this is what I really want you to, to, to focus on, other than the salvation aspect of these two chapters. A third remain. And who are they? 
Well, this is what we think is the indestructible third, the holy seed, a remnant, a believing remnant. And throughout the Bible, God has always kept a remnant who believe in him, and he protects them. Amen? Well, how do we know they're believers? Why am I saying that? Well, look at verse 9. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silvers refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. And that is why some theologians believe, whether your dispensation were formed, say that, that some Jews survived the Battle of Armageddon, I'm talking about national Jews, and they turn to Christ, who has protected them. And thus, all Israel is saved. Now, let me give you some things here, a different interpretations, okay? This is what I've struggled with during this whole you know, end time stuff, is how do I interpret these passages? What we just looked at this morning was primarily a literal interpretation. Obviously, there were symbolic things, figurative things I had to explain. But when I say literal, I mean this. Jerusalem is a city. Judah are the surrounding smaller cities. And they're actual people and places in the nation of Israel. And the original audience, the original audience who heard this message would have understood these two chapters this way. Literally. This means that the siege is a war. Okay? And it'll be located where the text says it will happen, in Israel. The city of Jerusalem will be under attack in a worldwide war. And by the way, I'm going to just throw this in here, is that there are other verses throughout uh, the Old Testament that talk about armies coming from the north and from the south and from the east and from the west. So this whole city is surrounded. This is where dispensationalists come up with the theories of like a Russian-Arab alliance. Okay? Okay, And this is where they, they get in trouble, in my opinion, because very well-known, great theologians have made guesses in, in saying that there'll be a Russian-Arab alliance because Russia is a superpower, and they're going to align with Libya and Omar Gaddafi. Well, where's Gaddafi now? Is Russia the power that we all thought she was? No. And so, you see, you get in trouble when you, when you make these claims and go this far. But it just generally speaks of armies all over, okay? And they're surrounding Jerusalem, okay? The city. Now, God's going to empower Judah. That's the towns and villages scattered throughout Israel. As we go keep talking about a little interpretation here. And they're going to somehow confound the world armies. Because this can only be reasonably explained as a miracle from God... Some ethnic Jews, not spiritual Jews, just national Jews, mourn for their sin of rejecting the Messiah as he appears in the sky, but eventually find salvation as they look to Jesus in faith at his second coming. The remaining ethnic Jews mourn, but not because of sorrow for their sin, but mourn his coming as they know judgment now awaits. Okay? So a literal interpretation obviously fits rather nicely with a dispensational understanding of, of eschatology and its distinct separation between Israel and the church. 
What's another interpretation? Well, a traditional Reformed interpretation of this passage is referring to, obviously, Israel is what? The true Israel of God, the church. Okay? These verses speak of God's sovereign protection and care of the church in the Old and New Testaments throughout the ages. And Jerusalem, which is the city of God, is symbolic of the church that has constantly been under attack. But instead of the church being destroyed, it is her enemies who come to ruin. And in the end, the church is victorious as God empowers his people to endure and ultimately saves the church, his people, at his second coming. Now, there are, most believe this, but not all, but still within a traditional form view, God also does save a remnant of ethnic Jews who during the tribulation return to him in faith, as Zechariah 12.10 and 13.9 indicate that we just looked at this morning. And they say that because Paul writes about that in Romans 11, 26 through 29. And in this regard, all Israel is saved. Now, whatever interpretation is correct, my point and my focus in the sermon is this, is not to miss the point that God is offering salvation right up to when? To the very end, to his second coming. And that's why I called this last part, saved at the very end. Paul wrote this. You guys know this. I've gone over this before. In working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Remember the grace was poured out at the very end? For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. From the moment that Jesus died until he comes again, this is the time of God's favor. This is the day of salvation. And he is, his heart is to reconcile people, to save people, even those who pierced him. And at the very end, he is offering them and will save some. I don't know how, if it's a third, whatever it is, but he will save some, a believing remnant. But the time of God's favor and salvation is now. It ends when he comes again. But right up to the very end, God is saving people. And in these two chapters, we find this. I think this is fascinating for those of you that want to go a little bit more technical here. And we close with this. Look at, there's a thing called the order of salvation. This isn't in that order, but we see all the elements of salvation here. First of all, the hearing and remembering of the word of God. They wouldn't have heard it or remembered it if they hadn't heard it. Right? That's preaching. God poured out a spirit of grace and supplication. That's regeneration. They look to Jesus. That's faith. Remember the Israelites were in the desert and what they have to look to in order to be saved. The serpent, they're looking. That's faith. Okay? Mourning for sin. That's repentance. Cleansing from sins. Purification. Changed lives. We talked about the, 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 the change in the hearts of the people. That's holiness. There's a payment for sin. We talked about that. The shepherd dying. Atonement in my people. Adoption. That's the real focus of chapters 12 and 13. Not the details of how it's going to play out, but we do know that this will happen at his second coming. One of England's great, greatest poets was William Cowper. You ever heard that name? He battled depression his whole life. When his father, stepmother, and closest friend died, he went into a mental and emotional collapse. He ended up at an insane asylum. 
It was there he was entrusted to the care of a Christian man who shared the gospel with Cowper. And during this time, Cowper explains, immediately I received strength to believe and the full beams of the sun of righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made. My pardon was sealed in his blood. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder. Before long, Cowper was released from the asylum, his heart cleansed by the fountain of Christ's blood, and throughout his life, his mental struggles would continue. But it was the gospel that sustained him. Now, many of Cowper's hymns remain popular, such as, Oh, for a closer walk with God, but the hymn for which he is best known comes from all places, Zechariah 13.1 titled, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Who knows this? Anybody? A few? Well, you're going to all know it this morning, because you can put that video up now. We're going to close with this video, and I just want you to sit there, okay, and just listen, and you can sing if you want to. If you don't, but just sit there, maybe just close your eyes, and listen to the words of this hymn as it is sung, because in this hymn, he gives his testimony of being cleansed by the grace of Christ, being washed by the blood, going through the fountain of blood. Can you put that up there now?